the conceit of of the West is that it's transcended Christianity to become purely universal, purely global. Mm. But its values, its assumptions, its ethics remain palpably bred of the marrow of Christianity. We've been able to get away with this conceit for as long as we have done because we're the products of societies that for two or three hundred years have been um, globally hegemonic. But as that ends, as, our, as the West's economic, financial, military, cultural power recedes, so I think our ability to assume that our values, our assumptions are universal will go into retreat as well. Hello there, welcome to Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen. Here at Lambeth Palace Library, we actually record in this amazing venue where we get to look out over Parliament. It's just the most amazing place to be able to record. Uh, it's part of the Centre for Cultural Witness. Uh, you can find us at the website seenandunseen.com. I am Justin Briley. And I am Val Tindall. And we are so pleased today to be joined by Tom Holland, who we will introduce in just a moment's time. Uh, but you've got a, a bit to say about Tom, first of all, Val. A bit to say, yes. Well, Tom is uh, an award-winning historian, author, broadcaster. I think we might be verging on national treasure territory, Ooh. personally. I don't know how you feel about that. Does that officially get bestowed on someone? Is it like being knighted, being named a national oh. treasure? I don't know. Guys, <laughs> don't, don't, don't embarrass yourselves. But more importantly, don't embarrass me. And of course, the co-host of the beloved podcast, The Rest is History. Absolutely. Author of uh, Rubicon, Persian Fire and the mighty, and it is mighty in every sense of the word, Dominion. Yes, um, we'd talk about that. Uh, the book that charts how the Christian revolution shaped the modern world. And uh, in, in a sense, your own journey, Tom, of realising that despite our increasingly post-Christian culture, we are still very much products of that Christian revolution. So really looking forward to talking to you today on the Reenchanting podcast about reenchanting history. And we'll also mention the coronation, which is coming up very soon as well. But um, welcome along to, to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. And um, thank you for inviting me to this incredible venue I, it's I not bad is I it? don't know where you record your podcast Tom but this it's not quite as impressive yeah, as this well, no. well anyway um, it's a very suitable location actually given that we're talking about yes. you know empire and Christendom and coronations to yeah. have you know Westminster yeah, Abbey just power. behind yeah. us uh, mm. so and just, and just down from Lambeth Palace yes so, yeah absolutely yeah it literally in the back garden of Lambeth Palace here um this podcast, though, is recorded at the top of Lambeth Palace Library, so we always start with, uh, with our guests asking, well, what are you reading at the moment? What's on your bedside table, Tom? You, uh, you mentioned the history podcast I do, The Rest mm. is History, um, and I'm in the midst of um, researching a series of episodes on the Hundred Years' War, oh, good. which I was obsessed by when I was about 12, I should think, and I read everything about it, and I haven't really read much about it since. So it's kind of um, one of the things where I'm dusting down a childhood obsession Great. so i am halfway through the second volume in jonathan sumption's enormous comprehensive <laughs> exhaustive <laughs> history of the hundred years war uh, and i am just approaching the battle of poitiers oh, when the black prince not only defeats the french king but takes him prisoner mm. is is it nice that i mean is that does that feel like you're reading kind of for work purposes or is it also for pleasure um, it's absolutely for both. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd been really wanting to do um, the Hundred Years' War 
pretty much since we started doing the podcast but I've been so busy with mm. other projects that I knew mm. I the reason I wanted to do it was I wanted to have the excuse to immerse myself in yeah. all the all the yeah. the reading um so uh, I've been saving it up until I had kind of two or three weeks Great. spare to to really I think the two or three weeks, Maggie, you just gave us a surprise. <laughs> a lot of our listeners, just two or three weeks. To get through the whole... Yeah. <laughs> to get through a very exhausting... Well, uh, normally, I mean, we did the French Revolution in, yeah. in 50 minutes, and I think I did about... <laughs> wow. About 10 minutes research on Wikipedia <laughs> for that. So we're, we're, we're becoming more professional. There you go. I know the art of blagging and bluffing your way through the odd podcast, Tom. So um, anything else on your bedside table at the moment? Uh, well, it's not on my bedside table. It's on a um, it's on a Kindle mm. uh, that I haven't yet downloaded, um, and it's a book that has been written. It's the first draft of a book by um, a cricketing friend, Michael Taylor, who has written a history of the discovery of dinosaurs. Oh, amazing! Um, Two of your favourite subjects <laughs> yeah. in one. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. So once I've <laughs> once I finish off the Black Prince. I'll be moving on to Megalosaurus. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Right. Speaking of the rest is history, and we'll start there because I think that'll be uh, well. If someone's, if people are listening to this podcast, then they're obviously podcast fans, so that might be you know where they sort of encounter you the most. It's the most popular history podcast in the world. I, I think it is. I, I think I'll, it's got a very to happy to, to go with <laughs> that. Should we, should we just yeah? Should we, let's just stick assume. our flag in the sand yeah, with that yeah. one. Yeah, there you go. Okay, I'm not going to dispute it. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Blame me. Um, what is it about that podcast that you think people are so drawn to? Um, and you get full. You can park. You can put modesty down for a moment. Yeah. I think it's want. probably the dynamic uh-huh. between sure. me and Dominic. Sure. Um, so my co-host Dominic Sandbrook is. Um, well, he kind of takes on the persona of a, a bluff, the bluff voice of Middle England. Yeah. And I very much have the persona of a kind of epicene, metropolitan. <laughs> so, <wig. yeah>. so <laughs> that's Dominic's the way it, tucking into roast beef right, and I'm kind of toying with yes. a, a French ragu. Is <laughs> very much, those are the kind of stereotypes that we conform to. So I think probably that. Um, and you've known each other a long time, right? Yeah, so we, we um, about 20 years ago, shared a publisher. Yeah. Um, and we met on a, a literary quiz. Okay. And we, we, had, we found that we had very similar interests. This is probably before you even heard the word podcast, but... Uh, I, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the thing is, I was more au okay with podcasts than Dominic was. Because <laughs> <laughs> he lives in Hobbiton. They don't have podcasts in Hobbiton. No. <laughs> well, it, it has just been amazing to see the way it's just absolutely exploded mm. into public consciousness it's I, I know people all over the world who listen to mm. to it and and I, I suppose what's the what's the secret apart from the chemistry obviously between you and uh, and Dominic that you know when, when it comes to these subjects which a lot of people might think oh can be somewhat dry or you know oh the things I learned at but school. they're not why, I mean that's why, the thing. why do they come that's alive the in your hands well I think I, maybe just because the as you'll know the key to doing podcast is to talk about things that interest you there's uh-huh. no point in doing it otherwise uh-huh. and I, I i guess that um sharing an interest is one of the most enjoyable things that you can do yeah. Mm. Yeah. and i think that um there's no aspect of history that isn't fascinating mm. and maybe we convey a sense of that of, of just mm. how fascinating all kinds of things are um so i mean we always find that the most the most popular episodes are the ones that you would expect. They're the, the yeah. kind of the, the, 
the bangers. Um, the, the sort of Rise of Hitler type episode. Rise of the, the Nazis, yeah. Julius mm. Caesar, all that mm. kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I, so often it's the episodes where people are surprised, I think, by mm. how interesting yes. a topic can mm. be. And the, the notorious example of that is... Um, an episode we did on pigeons and the role that pigeons have played in history, which I, I, I went to um, a carol service and met Gordon. I was sitting next to Gordon Carrera, who'd been listening to the podcast. Yeah. And Gordon Carrera is the BBC security correspondent. And he said that he'd, he'd written a book on the role played by pigeons in no. the First and Second World War. Um, you know, because they were used by intelligence services. Mm, so it was yeah, very much yeah. his, his field. Um, and he would love to to come on and talk about pigeons <laughs> and i was immediately smitten by the idea um because you know of course pigeons are basically are doves so you know we're here in lambeth palace doves yeah. have an important role to play in the bible um mm-hmm. in uh, greek and roman culture all kinds of things as well as the role that they played mm-hmm. in um in 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 war um and of course there's the the, the terrible narrative of the passenger pigeon which you know great flocks flew mm-hmm. over america billions of them and they'd all been kind of shot right. and now they're completely extinct so it did actually touch on all yes, kinds of interesting yes, aspects yeah, of history yeah. but i began floating it as an idea <laughs> to people on the podcast we'll be doing this episode on pigeons <laughs> and people thought that i was joking yeah and it became this kind of <laughs> mythical thing that was approaching and then finally we, we, we did it and um so i'm very proud that we do Good. the rise of the nazis and we do pigeons yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely mm. um you you grew up going to church um but you say that in your own life, the dimmer switch on faith got sort of turned down at an early age. Why? Why was that? What? what, what uh, it, well, it was kind of in my, I guess, in my my early teens. Um, I, I never, I never kind of, I never had a great crisis of faith where I started, you know, in a Byronic manner, railing at God or mm. thinking that religion was evil or anything like that. I, ne- I never went the, you know, the full Christopher Hitchens. But equally, um, I, th- I think I found other things more exciting and glamorous. And it was really mm. the kind of the, 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 the blaze of, say, in my, in my childhood, the blaze of, of the Greek gods. Mm. I found them much mm. more mm. charismatic um, and, and exciting. And I, I just kind of ended up not particularly interested in, in Christianity, I guess. But I, having said that, I did absolutely re- retain an interest in the dimension of the supernatural. Mm. Because um, when I left university, my ambition was to become a great novelist. I wanted to be Proust, mm. very mo- <laughs> modest ambition. <laughs> but it turned out that I, I lacked the, the capabilities to, to be Proust. And so instead, I was doing a, a doctorate on um, Byron and not really enjoying it and feeling mm. that... Um, that Byron was a subject that was ill-suited to an academic approach. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel that about quite a lot of things mm-hmm. that academics study, that, that often um, an academic approach can kind of kill the subject dead. But it struck me that um, Byron was the model for how most of us now think of the vampire, that mm-hmm. he became the, 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 the hero of the first kind of mass market vampire story mm-hmm. that was a product of the same... Um, uh, summer without a winter that saw the that saw mary shelley um come up with the idea for frankenstein mm. um and so i wrote a, a novel in which byron literally was a vampire yes and it told the story of his life making kind of sense of various um uh, enigmatic 
episodes in his life and explaining it through the prism of vampirism, which I thought was actually very convincing. Yeah, yeah. And so I found myself locked into um, a, a contract that required me to write three more vampire novels. Okay. And it had never been part of my life plan <laughs> to, to be a vampire novelist. But all the vampire novels I wrote were set in specific periods of history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was um, the, the, the premise was basically taking the beliefs, the supernatural beliefs of a particular period in time and interpreting through the prism of, of vampirism, mm. wow. um, which was actually quite a good discipline for what I then went on to do, which was to write history without vampires. <laughs> because I'd, I'd realised, even as I was writing, I was much more interested in the history mm. than history I was in... History could still be interesting uh, history without could, vampires. Well, history was actually much more interesting yes. without vampires, right. was yes. what I came <laughs> to realise, that, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. That's what Byron yeah. said. Yeah. Um, and so when I, I, I then came to write a book about the Romans, Rubicon, you mentioned it, um, mm-hmm. and then a book about Greeks and the Persians and so on. Um, and I, I took into writing about those periods of history a sense that the supernatural really mattered mm. and that to adopt a, a kind of sneery, superior, purely materialist approach to the beliefs of, of ancient peoples was... I mean, it wasn't just that, that it was unjustified, but that it risked seriously and grievously misinterpreting um what ancient peoples were doing and why they were doing it Mm. um and so that led me inexorably to an interest in christianity because the more i thought about um say what the the romans or the athenians thought believed how they ordered their lives how they structured their government their, their, their perspectives on the entire fabric of, of things seen and unseen, um, I came to realise that my ability to understand them was being obstructed basically by my Christian assumptions mm. that I was seeing through a glass darkly, mm. If, mm. if you like, mm. and that the glass was dark, the darkness in the glass was a Christian darkness. It was the filter through which yeah. you were yeah. looking. Exactly. Mm. And 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 the challenge was to you know, if I was to, to try and make sense of the pre Christian world was to try and filter mm. that out. But to do that I had to recognise and appreciate what it was about the filter that was Christian. Mm. Mm. Just for anyone who has yet to read Dominion in particular, and of course those people will be going on to read it straight after this <laughs> I hope podcast so. ends. Inshallah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, and how do you squeeze such a mighty book into this answer? Tell us a little bit about what what Dominion's main argument, what's the thread that runs through Dominion? What did you find in Rubicon and in Persian? Um, and then how, how did that feed into what Dominion well, is so saying? The cliche that I parade when asked this question. Yes, and, please. Um, cliche away. I know that Justin certainly will have heard me say this <laughs> a million times and will probably start gnawing his leg off as I say it again. <laughs> but the, the, the core thesis is that yeah. we are goldfish swimming in Christian waters. Okay. And we don't recognise that we are in a goldfish bowl. Mm. And we in the West tend to assume that things that are actually very culturally contingent, a product of the... 2000 years of of the christian revolution yeah yeah the risk is assuming that it's just the way things are Mm -hmm. that it's human that that we do things because that's what human nature is that there are that that our understanding of what is the right thing to do is um is inherent within us that there's a kind of inherent morality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um 
But it's not just in the dimension of morals or ethics. It's the way that we comprehend society. It's the way that we understand sexuality. It's the way we understand gender. It's almost every aspect of our lives is shaped by the weathering effects of Christianity. So that even even concepts that seem to come from a pre-Christian period, we interpret them through a Christian prism. So we, we, we are here, you know... I have my back to the Houses of Parliament, so I shouldn't really turn. I, people, <laughs> my voice faded away because I was turning to look at the Houses of Parliament then. They're behind us. Yes. Um, so we're in the heart of democracy. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows that democracy is a Greek word, that it goes back to ancient Athens. Yeah. And it's conventionally translated, you know, people power. Mm-hmm. The people have power. Mm-hmm. People have kratos. But, and that was kind of my assumption when I came to write about um, the democracy in ancient Athens in Persian fire. Yeah. But it was one of the first times where I really felt, actually, my ability to understand what was going on. Because I was writing about how democracy emerges in Athens. And I, I realized that my, my gut assumptions about what a democracy was were, were deeply flawed and deeply Christian. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, that we have the idea that democracy is about rights. People have the right to a vote. Mm-hmm. And so whenever people say about Athenian democracy, they'll say, yes, the, the, the freeborn males in Athens had the vote, but women didn't, um, slaves didn't, foreigners didn't. Um, and the assumption is that this somehow invalidates the, the democracy that Athens had. It's, it's measured by our standards in the 21st century and found wanting. Sure. But actually, that's not what the demos means the demo the people is a very very weak translation of demos demos is the totality of people who have sprung from the soil of attica i mean and the the athenians meant this literally Mm. you know they were they were they saw themselves as literally emerging from the earth the sacred soil of attica and it was the people who were living in in athens but it was also the people who had gone before them and the people who were to come. Mm. So it was an inherently supernatural idea. And it was about the, the, the idea that the, the, the earth of Attica was sacred to the gods and specifically to Athena, who gave her mm. name to the city in which sure. they lived. And that um, the people have power because in some way that is the best way to preserve the um the favor of the gods and secure their their protection over the city Mm. and so men have the vote because it's their responsibility to 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 construct laws that will enable the functioning of the city in the here and now but equally important is to keep the gods on board and that preeminently is the role that women have so in the great festivals that the Athenians hold, of which the, the most celebrated, because it's, it's portrayed on the, um, on, on the Parthenon Friesus in the British Museum, where the Panathenaea, when a great celebration goes up to the Acropolis, yeah. um, it's led by women. And it, it's women who play the key role. And to our way of thinking, this seems a scam. You know, men have have, have hoovered up the vote. Mm-hmm. They they mm-hmm. do all the practical things. Women yeah. are kind of fobbed off with weaving a, a you know a robe for for Athena and taking it up to the Acropolis. Mm. But that's not how they saw it. No. And we have to divorce. You know, we have to kind of blank out the idea that this is about rights because that is a kind of a, a Christian assumption mm. right. that would have made no sense in yeah. the Athenian democracy. So so. It, that's an example of the kind of thing that, yeah. that made me interested in writing about okay. Christianity and made me conscious of the degree to which 
all of us in the here and now are shaped by it. And so to, mm. to that extent, to the degree that we now conceive of democracy as very much being about rights and human rights, right. it, it's more... Uh, uh, comes from the Christian tradition than from yes. the Athenian one. Yes, and so the, yeah. t- the temptation is to say our democracy, is, you know, we derive it from from ancient Athens. Mm. We don't. Right. I mean, it's mm. to say it's we use that word because it's something that the word democracy is taken up. You know, it's written about by Aristotle. It's written mm. about by Cicero. These are texts that pass into the mainstream of European intellectual discourse, and so people in universities are are studying these texts, mm. and people are familiar with. Greek words like democracy, aristocracy, monarchy, yeah. and so on, as types of government. But the people who are doing this, people who are studying it in, in universities, Aristotle mm. and, and Cicero, are Christians. Yeah. And so yeah. they are, they're colouring it with their assumptions, and, and we have inherited that. And, yeah. and as you sort of dove, in a sense, yourself into that ancient world of Greece and Rome and so on, I, you, you obviously tell the story in Dominion how your, those preconceptions you had began to be challenged and you, as, as it were, in all kinds of areas, started to see the ways in which the Western world is so very different to the values and traditions and everything else, and, and started to put together the pieces that, that so many of these seem to actually, that the change seemed to be at that point where Christianity arose in, in yeah. the Middle East. Again, yeah, again, y- yes, essentially everything changes with Christianity, I think. Um, and by well, when I say everything, I mean uh, everything within countries that have been Christian yeah. for centuries, millennia. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but having said that, I also think that the influence of Christianity on the on the world more generally has 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 been profound too. Um, but particularly in a country like Britain that has been um, Christian for a millennium and more, mm. the saturating effects are, are, are so profound that we don't recognise them, mm. and that's not surprising. Mm. I mean, mm. it's. It's only to be expected. And, yeah. and yet that, that thing you said about the assumption that, well, hey, we're all humans, you know, this is, there is this sort of innate human morality. That, you, you find that all the time today. I mean, the British Humanist Association um, is, is essentially, that is its core doctrine. You know, we, we, we don't need Christianity, we don't need anything, we just need to recognise our common humanity. So what, what do you say to those folk when, when they sort of say, hang on a minute, Tom, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not all down to Christianity? I, th- I think that um, that the modern West is unique in its cultural arrogance, in, <laughs> in its assumption that its beliefs are universal, that everyone shares in them, and that if they don't, then they should. Mm. Mm. There's no sense that they're culturally contingent. Um, most people in the past were aware of that, but but we are uniquely arrogant, and mm. the reason for that is is complicated and and very much tied up with the emergence and, and history of Christian theology, and essentially, what we have as a result of the distinctive emergence of theological concepts in Latin Christendom is an idea that the world can be di- divided into two dimensions, the d- dimension of, of the secular and the, a dimension that we call religion. So the idea that there is something called religion mm. that is separate from everything else in society yeah. is a distinctively Western one that is theologically determined. 
And again, this is something that I became very, very aware of when writing about, say, the Romans or the Greeks. If you think of, um, say, a, a, you know, an introduction to ancient Greece, there will probably be a chapter on religion, Greek religion, and it will tell you the story of the mm. gods and there'll be something about priests and yeah. temples and cults. Um, and then there might be something about the family or mm -hmm. the city or warfare mm -hmm. or agriculture or something like that. Mm -hmm. As though these, as though the, there is a dimension that can be of the mm -hmm. supernatural that can be separated off from mm -hmm. that, but it can't because for the Greeks, the dimension of the supernatural and the dimension of the natural are as interfused as, as gin and tonic are in a gin and tonic. Yeah. They can't be kind of separated, separated yeah. out like yeah. that. Whereas we do have that assumption. Mm. Mm. Um, and in a way, it, it's a brilliant way of, for us to proselytize our values. Because although it's, it's bred of Christian theology, it's kind of ended up cannibalizing institutional Christianity. Mm -hmm. In a sense, it, 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 the, the conceit of, of the West is that, that it, it's transcended Christianity to become purely universal, purely global. Mm. Mm. Um, and therefore it can market itself in those terms. Um, but its values, its assumptions, its ethics remain palpably bred of the marrow of mm. Christianity. Mm. And I think that we've been able to get away with this conceit for as long as we have done because we're the products of societies that for two or three hundred years have been um globally hegemonic mm. Mm. um but as that ends as our as the west's economic financial military cultural power recedes so i think our ability to assume that our values our assumptions mm. are universal mm. will go into retreat as well mm. Mm. yeah when we don't have the power in a sense to say to china you have to adopt these human rights because, right so human because, rights is an absolutely yeah, classic yeah. example People talk about universal yeah. human rights. Now, universal, what is universal? Universal means, Catholic, you know, in Greek is Catholic. Yeah. So what we're yeah. talking about is Catholic human yeah. rights. People never put, you know, don't translate <laughs> it in that, but that's what we're talking about. Yeah. It's so instinctive that we don't even recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. And human rights are Catholic yeah. in the sense of that they emerge as a, as a coherent philosophical idea in the 12th century in the emergent universities of, mm. of, of the Latin West. Mm. And our assumption that they are somehow, they float in the ether, that they are things that are just there, mm. is, is as, you know, I mean, it's as far-fetched mm. as, 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 mm. as believing in angels mm. or the Trinity or anything. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> a theological yeah. concept. But whereas the Trinity or angels are, are clearly Christian categories, cr Christian concepts, yes. Christian myths, if you want, um, and have to be accepted as such. You know, they can't escape their their Christian character. Mm -hmm. The idea of human rights can, mm. yeah. mm. and so people can can say everyone should should have this yeah. understanding they, of human rights. They can rights. separate the gin and the tonic. Yeah. Uh, yes, mm. <laughs> do, or you, try to. do you think so? Um, uh, another guest on this series, Graham Tomlin, he's also sort of the captain of uh, the seen and unseen ship, and his line that. Um, he pulls out a lot is that society is infinitely worse off 
if there's no overarching story. And I think seeing as he's a bishop in the Church of England, he'd be very comfortable in being explicit of the, you know, the Christian story. But I think my question then, what have we lost in separating the gin from the tonic? What have we lost in trying to secularise what you say are, are theological concepts that haven't just appeared in a vacuum? Do you think there's been a loss there? Or do you think it's actually it's okay to sort of squeeze the juice out of the lemon? And then discard the lemon. Well, I, I quite like living in a, a secular state. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it serves the, the interests of a multi-faith society pretty well. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, I think, that it requires not looking at the foundations, you know, the, the, the kind of ideological underpinnings of secularism too closely. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, you realise that actually it's, it, it is still, um, you know, it's not neutral. The conceit of, of secularism is that the secular state is neutral and can be neutral between religions. Yeah. But it can't because it's inherently biased towards a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. And it, it requires um, other ways of, of comprehending the dimension of the supernatural to conform to a, a Christian shape. Mm. Um, because, say, a, a Muslim ha- in Britain has freedom of religion. Yes. Yeah. But inherent in that idea that there is freedom of religion is that Islam is a religion. Yeah. But if the category of a religion that, it, that is something distinct from a, a secular space is Christian, then it requires Islam in Britain to become that much more Christian, mm-hmm. to shape itself to a kind of Christian understanding, basically okay. to become a religion. Um and that you know that may be fine, but I think it it does generate all kinds of stresses and tensions sure. that that you know that that we've seen over the past few decades. Mm. That it 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 imposes demands on Muslims that 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 can that, that can make Islam a kind of uncomfortable bedfellow. For, for, for secularism, as mm. as you would expect, because mm. it's the height of arrogance to assume that a civilization as, as that is a, you know just as as complex and rich and sophisticated as Christian civilization, basically the conceit of secularism is that you know the whole of Islam can be brought into the big tent, mm. you know. But that's can it? Mm. <laughs> that's that's. I suppose that's a big question. I mean, I'd love to come back to the, the the fruits of Christianity and whether they can exist without the the roots and so on. But I'm, I'm, I'm aware that we're, we're sitting, you know, just outside Parliament, uh, Westminster Abbey, where the coronation will be taking place soon, is there. Um, you, you, I'm sure you'll be covering this in The Rest is History and, and, and lots of other ways. But obviously, the monarchy and European monarchies have always obviously had this very close relationship very often with uh, Christianity, Christendom, uh, a checkered relationship in, in many ways. Um, and you're, in your own book, you're very clear about the... The, the good and the bad, as it were, mm. in that history. Well, but but also that our understanding of what is good and bad is is, is, is fundamentally shaped by a Christian outlook. Exactly. Mm. So, what what's your give us, if you would, a quick primer on the way in which you know what we're going to be seeing in the coronation of King Charles is sort of prefigured in a sense by Christian history. I mean, I know that in that ceremony itself, there's going to be a lot of stuff which a lot of people might be quite surprised by, given the last one was seventy plus years ago. Um, about just how Christian and how much relevance there'll be well, to it, the Old Testament it's, and all that it's sort a, of thing. It's an incredibly Christian ritual. Yeah. And the, the coronation ritual 
takes us back to the early years of of um christianity in england um so the the coronation ritual that the king will be using uh in its essence goes back to the time of, of edgar in the 10th century um and it was composed for him by saint dunstan um archbishop of canterbury mm-hmm. um while he was supposedly working as a blacksmith the devil came in and he reached for the tongs and took the the devil by his by with the with the tongs on the nose yeah so um it takes us back to you know (laughs) a dimension where stories like these are being told of archbishops i don't don't think justin welby has i I haven't heard devil with a pair of of tongs of that happening but you Um, never know so so that's taking us back but it goes back further than that because um the idea that that kings should be anointed um is one that actually in the west seems to originate in visigothic spain before the, the before the um the muslim invasions of 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 spain tradition says that it goes back to clovis who was the first king of the franks to be mm-hmm. um baptized into the catholic faith and it says it, the, the story is that the ampulla is is you know the holy oil is brought mm. down to him um but the idea of of kings being anointed of course goes back to to the old testament it goes back yeah. to um saul and david and solomon so it's it's a fantastically ancient ritual mm. i mean you know we're going right the way back to bronze age israel yeah um and i think the fact that it's taking place in a you know one of the the, the great cities of of the modern world is fantastic um and kind of unique because yes. in in medieval europe there were only four monarchs that were anointed so that was mm. the king of england king of france king of jerusalem king of sicily mm. king of england's the only one that's still around right mm. the last in a sense explicitly christian s- symbolism as it were in in a in a uh, in a coronation yes. service then I, I mean what's your feeling about you know, obviously, the king's predecessor, Queen Elizabeth II, had a deeply held faith, and and one gets the sense that at her coronation in 1952, there was a real sense of um, the that 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 she she really did take this as yeah got a, you know a divine mandate. It's on a sacrament, her, a yeah. sacrament exactly, as obviously as presumably many generations of monarchs before her did you don't know who you know exactly what king charles thinks of of his you know this perspective but can almost one wonders almost how long that idea can even survive in modern 21st century it's a very interesting one i mean i i wonder whether whether this will be the last Mm. i I think charles probably does take it seriously he Mm. he seems mystically inclined Mm -hmm. um whether whether william i mean william doesn't seem don't know i don't really know enough what william thinks but he doesn't seem maybe he does i don't know i don't know i mean who knows i don't know but um i i think for anyone with a sense of with with an interest in history uh, it it will be an amazing thing Mm. i mean it's like seeing it is like seeing a kind of dinosaur or something yeah you know still alive (laughs) in a zoo or something yeah Um, absolutely um i mean i think i think it's interesting because um when the queen died the rituals of mourning were very christian mm. yes and 
I think people was lots of people were surprised by how moving they found that mm. and um enjoyed the sense of of sacrality and weirdness yes. that they suddenly found was were manifest at the very heart of of the fabric of mm. the british state mm. um of of course there were lots of people who 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 hated it um and and essentially whether you find you know whether you whether you whether you enjoy the fact that you know bronze age rituals have been conducted <laughs> to mark the passing and the yeah. the the the, the, the uh, the, the hailing of of your head of state or mm. not mm. <laughs> you know i mean that's a very much a temperamental yeah. thing yeah, yeah. I, I i love it I, I think it's great. <laughs> but i can i can understand why why people who who, who don't want to have yeah. kind mm. of this this degree of 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 weirdness at the heart of things would would find it annoying yeah i think that's what i'm intrigued about is you know the the goldfish in the goldfish bowl is how people will respond when they're told they're in the goldfish bowl. I'm really right, intrigued so, so, so about that. The coronation absolutely yes, is, is, a, yeah. is a kind of, oh, look, we're in a goldfish yes, bowl. So, kind and of you yeah, suddenly absolutely. notice the water you're swimming in. Yes, have, yeah. What have been, I'm, I'm assuming you might have a little bit of insight because how have people responded to, but you know, this idea that human rights and all of these things are, how do people, does that annoy certain, you know, your atheist friends, for example? How yeah, do people respond I, I, to so the I'd, fishbowl? I'd, I'd written an earlier book in The Shadow of the Sword about um, late antiquity and the the, emp- the relationship of, of empire and monotheism in late antiquity. So Zoroastrianism and Persian Empire mm-hmm, and Christianity sure. and, and um, the Roman Empire. And then, of course, um, Islam and the Arab Empire. And the argument in that was that um, the stories Muslims tell about the emergence of Islam, whether it's how the Quran came to be composed or um, uh, who Muhammad was and the early years of, of, of the empire that his followers are, are said to have founded, mm. that a lot of this was mythical, that, mm. that the okay. sources for it are, are, are too late to be taken as literally telling us what happened. And this generated quite a lot of controversy. And I made a film about it as well that went out on Channel 4 that obviously had a much larger audience than a, okay. than a book mm. and, and generated quite a lot of... of, um, of I, love, I love your uh, British uh, understatement here if you're about to say generated a little bit of controversy. Yeah. I mean, the odd Well, it generated threat. a lot of death yes, threats, yes, let's exactly. put it like that. Yeah. Um, and I, ha- I was supported by, you know, lots of... of atheists humanists rallied to the cause mm. uh, and i was incredibly grateful for their support uh, and I, I think probably some of some of those people who rallied to my cause do feel that i've slightly slapped them in the back <laughs> by telling them basically that they're all christian um you know what can you, what can you do and one of the things that prompted that that that's that steeled me to write dominion was that when i was giving giving a talk about in the shadow of the sword mm. there was a muslim in the audience who uh, who said how can you do this you know mm. how have you how could you do this you would never do this to your own beliefs mm. and i felt the force of what she was saying because I, it had already begun to trouble me yeah. mm. exactly that because the i i i realized that i, I was not being neutral when i wrote mm. about islam mm. the beginnings of islam 
because I'm not a Muslim. Mm. You know, there's not a mm. position of neutrality mm. where I can stand outside. Mm. I, I am as party pre mm. as, as the most committed Muslim on this. My perspective, because, I, you know, not believing that the Quran comes from God is as much a faith position as believing that it does. Mm. So mm. I was kind of aware of that. And I was also aware, I, I was already kind of thinking about, well, where do my assumptions come from? And feeling that the the kind of the enlightenment perspective which rather unthinkingly i'd had since my teenage years mm. when i'd read edward gibbon's decline of all the roman empire you know and he byron said of him that he he sapped a solemn creed with solemn sneer <laughs> and i liked his solemn sneer mm. and kind of i and and felt myself to be on on its side mm. but i I'd, I'd, I was coming to realize that my kind of default assumption that my values, beliefs, perspectives derived from the Enlightenment would d- were deeply inadequate. And mm. so essentially I, I wrote Dominion to do to my beliefs kind of what I'd done mm. to Islam in, mm. in, in, the, in the shadow of the sword, i.e. Mm. to deconstruct them, to stress test yeah. them, to, to see, well, are, are the myths that I have been brought up to believe, are they actually true? Mm-hmm. You know, what is is the Enlightenment something that banishes Christianity, that kind of supersedes it, that triumphs over it, or is it are its are its myths themselves essentially Christian? And the whole idea, you know, the very word Enlightenment, the idea that people mm. have walked in darkness and are being brought into light, the idea that mm. superstition is something to be banished, the idea that you know the the idols that pe- people worship must be toppled i mean this is clearly a very protestant thing mm, it's sure. it's mm. the, the the debt that the enlightenment owes to the the reformation once you see it you can't you can't forget it yeah. but equally the conceit of the reformation that it is somehow a radical break i mean in one sense of course it is but but um the reformers are doing nothing that you know, missionaries in the early middle ages weren't doing they mm-hmm. also were, mm-hmm. were were bringing people into the light as they saw it toppling idols um, banishing superstition and that in turn of course is drawing on things that go back ultimately to to, to mm. prophets mm. of the old testament mm. Mm. um you know the idea that the gods of of egypt and babylon are nothing but stock and stone <coughs> so that I, 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 of course, telling my humanist friends that they were basically, you know, I mean, they were a kind of end point in the history of Protestantism. Lots of them were annoyed. Mm. But I've got to say it for humanists. Yeah. They're much less prone to issuing death threats. than <laughs> yes. sure. They get angry on Twitter, but it's, yeah. that's, that's, yeah. you can cope with that. Yeah, but that, yeah. You know, it's a kind yeah. of very Church of England <laughs> form yes. of anger. I'm really cross. <laughs> I'm thinking about um, sort of what Nietzsche said. If, um, if I butcher this, apologies, but um, we're living in the shadow of the corpse of God. And yeah. What would you what would you say to you know obviously you're a historian but going forward do you see that um, maybe as we do all sort of start to realise um, that we're in the fishbowl um, it's, a, it's a great metaphor to cling on mm-hmm. to that one I see why it's your cliche that you open things with um, well cliches are cliches because you know exactly. they work yeah dead right um, 
Do you see us wanting to keep the fruits without the roots? What? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and Nietzsche was was particularly contemptuous of sure. um, of of British liberals. Okay. I mean, even when he's writing in the late nineteenth century, he 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 preserves his preserves his particular scorn for for British liberals, mm. who he he singles out that they. You know, they, they they want to keep the fruits of Christianity while while banishing everything that you know the the, mm. the tree, mm. um, and I think that that's that he if he if he came and took a temperature check on the intellectual state of Britain now, he yeah. he would be even more contemptuous probably, because at least back in the nineteenth century, um, British agnostics understood the context from which they were emerging i mean they were deeply deeply familiar with the bible and Mm. you know christian doctrine whereas now Mm. most people aren't um but i think more broadly um nietzsche's 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 perspective at the end of the 19th century was that um the death of god would was was bound to create times of 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 fearsome convulsion kind Mm. of age of blood and of course he was absolutely right because effectively what he was prophesying was was the emergence of fascism and i think that what what nietzsche didn't see well maybe he did actually so i think i i think that fascism has slightly rebooted the christian inheritance because it's given us a new mythology (laughs) so people now in the west by and large are are not familiar with the christian myths of Mm -hmm. heaven and hell Mm -hmm. of of angels and demons sure but we have a new mythology that essentially has taken the place of, of of that earlier christian mythology because instead of demons we have nazis instead of the devil we have hitler instead of hell we have auschwitz and why 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 did the nazis play that role basically because they unlike say the french revolutionaries or the russian revolutionaries mm. who who certainly targeted institutional christianity but didn't target the fundamentals of christianity the moral fundamentals of christianity namely the idea that there is a kind of universal human dignity sure. and the idea that the first shall be last and the last yes. shall be first yeah. um the Nazis basically repeated both those ideas. Yeah. They they absolutely felt that um, you know there isn't a universal human dignity mm. that um, mm. that that Greek and Jew are not one. Yeah. That yeah. Um, that there are different races and that mm. you know and that there should one be race should triumph the over the other. Yeah. And absolutely, that there should be survival of the fittest, which in turn means that um, you you not only have the right but you have the moral duty mm. to kind of dispose of the, the weak yeah i mean that's mm. that's yeah that's the moral good okay um and and that i think it was seen as so shocking by people because it is such a conscious repudiation of the christian inheritance so okay. the nazis serve us as these you know as the, the model for evil and depravity because they offended our christian values and so they give us an ersatz christian myth and if you think of of Nietzsche's um, parable of the death of God lying in the cave, casting sh- that corpse casting shadows, yeah, yeah. so it's a kind of riff on Plato. Yeah. Um, those 
our, our obsession with Hitler, you know, our determination to call anyone we disagree with a Nazi is a flickering of the, of the shadow of the corpse of God, I think. But if that's so, then it leaves open the question, what, how, you know, how sustainable is that mythology as I mean, the memory of the, of, of, of the Second mm. World War and the Nazi period fades? Is, is that mythology strong enough to maintain mm. our, yeah. our values in the way that historically Christianity has been? I, I sometimes wonder, though, as well, whether when atrocities happen, and even you know, in more recent past, you know, when Putin invades Ukraine and so on, and people are suddenly brought up to the fact that evil exists, it turns out we're not all heading towards this beautiful humanist paradise where everyone will just realise we should all be a brotherhood of man and live in harmony together in a sort of godless utopia. That sort of human, the human, the trajectory doesn't always bend towards justice, you know, as, as, no. as Martin Luther King said. And does that in itself perhaps cause people to go back and ask, is the kind of humanist doctrine of, well, we're all going to keep getting better as we just get to more, more knowledgeable and more technology. I, and Yeah, I, I would have thought so. I mean, I, I could, could that point them back to well, the Christian so, story? And, and, I don't know. I, I would have thought it would because um, essentially it's a supernatural faith that things are, you know, that, that the universe has a purpose, that, mm. what was it, the arc of... The arc of the the moral arc of the universe bends um, towards justice. Bends towards justice. Mm. Yes, I, I mean, that's 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 obviously nonsense if you don't believe in a supernatural dimension. And it was like, you know, obviously I mean, stated just, by a clergyman, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think it's it's not just that the the idea that humans have an inherent value um, is is plainly a, a theological assumption mm. something that can only be underpinned by a sense of faith i mean it's not objectively true scientifically there's no way in which science can demonstrate right. that that is true mm. um but i think also there's the the sense that um actually that our kind of post-christian ideology humanist ideology secular liberal whatever you want to call it progressive ideology is actually rather anemic and rather boring right and that's why that's why again hitler is so important because um the nazis have the kind of malign glamour yes that that devils have in in christian mythology and it makes it kind of exciting it dramatizes yes. the story it 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 illustrates the kind of the the moral teachings that we hold to mm. in our society in the most dramatic manner possible and that's why i think that um it's it's such a mistake for the churches to kind of try and blend themselves into into the kind of the the, the, the dominant secular take because I think that that without the, the Christian story Christianity itself comes to seem pallid mm. Mm. The, the drama the excitement the you know the inherent quality you know these are it's called the greatest story ever yeah. told it is mm. the greatest you know in terms of it, its measurable impact on the history of the world it's plainly the greatest story ever told the biblical narratives yeah. the the um 
the sense of, of a mythology that Christianity has always been rooted in. And abandoning that or, or not emphasizing it, not foregrounding it, seems to me a terrible mistake on the part yeah, of the church. Or apologizing for it. Mm. It's, it I, I mean, you've, I've heard you say this before that, you know, you want, in a sense, if, if the church's story is to remain foregrounded, it, it needs to keep Christianity weird. It doesn't want to be just another sort of public service provider, you know, yeah. in line with, you know, the NHS and civil service or, or anything like that. Well, I, but I think that what Christianity can do is to dramatize our values and our ideals for us yes and if christianity doesn't do it then we don't really apart from the kind of the nazis we don't really have an uh, we don't have a dramatic story right. that carries it and conveys it and i think part of say part of what is happening uh, say in america at the moment is that there's people are looking around for alternative stories that can illustrate the values that they want to to tell so that's why black lives matter was was so fascinating from that point of view was that the story of george floyd an innocent man Mm. put to death by the Mm. you know the apparatus of a superpower Mm. you know why 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 did the power of that clearly drew on the fact that at the heart of western civilization for whatever a thousand years and more we have had the figure of mm. an innocent man put to death mm. by the security apparatus mm. of mm. a superpower mm. and the martyrdom of george floyd which is how it was portrayed has its cultural power on the fact that we as a society in Europe and America are culturally attuned Mm. to finding that stirring and moving and powerful Mm. but we do that because of the story of the passion ultimately and if our society does not have a familiarity with that story then ultimately our ability to to find the idea of an innocent poor man being put to death by the powerful that capacity will fade i think Mm -hmm. over the course of decades perhaps centuries can i ask a question that may is in danger of feeling simplistic but i think the obvious question to ask you know you've said some i can't remember what podcast i heard you say or maybe you've said it a few times but the the death (laughs) the death charge of jesus reverberated out and out and out and is still doing so and you've just given a, a really tangible example um in the killing of george floyd a really simple question, but that I think if I was listening to this podcast, I just want you to touch on is why? What, what about that story? What about that particular death charge? What about the way that, um, why the reverberations? And what about the earlier reverberations that were powerful enough that we're still feeling them now? Um, I, I think, it, I, well, I think if you look at um, the way that um, the ideas, that are that are are framed in the hebrew scriptures are starting to influence the roman world there's there's clearly a fascination with them Mm. and i i I think it's a reflection of the fact that living in the roman empire it's possible to to have a sense of the whole of humanity Uh, that that's the roman conceit but you know you're living in a single global order it's possible to 
to imagine and you know a world in which everybody has a kind of common humanity and the hebrew scriptures are the most kind of The, the 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 most intellectually rich way of framing that the idea that there is you know a god who has created everything and created all human beings in his image is one that i think people across the roman empire are starting to find quite interesting but okay. there's that's counterset against the fact that this is a judean god mm-hmm. so the the role you know how does this judean god relate to greeks or romans or whatever Mm -hmm. egyptians um and the 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 genius of the message that's preached by paul is to come up with an answer to that to say that there is a new covenant and that it is somehow tied in with the fact that christ has died for for everybody and therefore everybody can be bound by this new covenant mm-hmm. and by placing the idea that it's it's weakness that has triumphed over strong over over, over the strong yeah. it's it's like a i mean it's it's like um it's like one of those kind of lightning flashes that people sometimes say kind of generated life <laughs> it's it's a wholly unexpected development that proves unbelievably pr- fruitful yeah absolutely. um and it obviously it works because it chimes with something very profound in human nature but it hadn't really been tried in that way before mm. okay i mean that yeah. that in a sense is you know a, a brilliant objective historical answer potentially to why the revolution took hold in the last few minutes that we've got with you tom i suppose i wanted to move it to from Tom Holland, the objective historian, to Tom Holland, the the personal person, and what you do, and what you've been feeling with, as this Christian story intellectually has obviously you've, you've realised the power and impact of it, and so on. I, I I know that you know you you pop into the odd church, you darken the doorway of the odd uh, building. What's the has 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 this kind of gone alongside a sort of personal kind of spiritual journey well so i still i still believe that in in the liberal values that i had yes well uh, instinctively i believe in them objectively i don't if (laughs) if i'm being Mm. if i'm being um purely pitiless with myself if i the pure rationalist i I kind of i i i i I stand on a kind of nietzschean abyss (laughs) where basically i can't believe anything that i want to believe Mm. um I feel the under, you know the, the the underpinnings have been taken away. So in that sense, it's quite a kind of Victorian crisis of faith. You know, <laughs> yes. Matthew Arnold. Ever, I mean, mm. they were all George Eliot. They were kind of feeling this as well in a, in a way. But I do still believe in them. I do mm. still think I, that every human being has a dignity. I do think that um, that strength isn't the measure of value, mm-hmm. mm. and. I think that these I, I, I recognize these as being not scientific, not being objective, but as being bred of a distinctive cultural and, and theological tradition that is all around me, mm. that is part of my inheritance. It's very, very easy for me to read the Bible, go to a church, listen to what Christians are saying 
read the great masterpieces of, of, of Christian literature and and feel moved by it and feel that I, I am a part of what they're talking about. Mm. And sometimes I, I can feel that this is more for me than just a kind of an exercise in cultural tourism. Mm. Sometimes I can feel, you know, I can believe that um, the spirit is real. Uh, I, I, I can believe that the story of the passion and the resurrection is so strange that it's not just a kind of um, cultural accident, that perhaps it, it is expressive mm. of something that is true. Mm. And there are other times where I just think, no, it's all complete nonsense. Um, we are just, anim- <laughs> you know, we're just animals. We'll probably all be wiped out by an asteroid at some point or, you know. We'll, like go the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah, we'll go the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, it'll all be... And I suppose it's a bit like when you're first learning, trying to ride a bike that, that you can find yourself, wow, I'm riding a bike. Mm. And then you think, oh, and then you fall off. Mm. And it it varies on my mood it varies on the time of the year it it varies on how hard i think about what it is that i'm doing yes um but i suspect that i'm not in unusual in that actually i i um i would agree i i think your, your experience is probably shared by so many but there's a sense in which inevitably faith has always been something where you you to some extent do have to do that Kierkegaardian sort of leap of faith of saying okay I can yeah. only I, my reason and logic can only take me so far and and at this point I am sort of going on a sense of my gut instinct that the way I would want why the way I want life to be almost. but I tell you I mean I tell you when I when I feel it when I feel it least is when I hear Christians talking about Christianity as though it's just something that can be entirely blended in seamlessly mm. okay. with the, the broader pattern of, mm. of, of the secular world, then I just despise it and think there's no point in it so and, you know, grow up. Like everything else. Yeah. yeah. But when I, but, but, but when I, um, you know, when I, when I visit, uh, I don't know, so I've just, I've just been to Kent mm. um, exploring pre-Norman conquest Kent. And among, I went to, um, St. Martin's, you know, on the outskirts of Canterbury, which is the church that Bertha, who was the mm-hmm. um, Frankish queen of Athelbert of Kent, who, who receives Augustine, first of the archbishops of Canterbury. Um, and, and she was worked, she'd been given this, this, this place that seems to have been a Roman mausoleum. So you stand in that place and you are not only going back to the beginnings of, of, continuous christianity in the english-speaking world in that space but you're also going back beyond that to the last days of the roman empire and a sense of the strangeness Mm. there then i completely felt i I completely felt it i felt the kind of spirit rush the flame (laughs) um and maybe it's just that my sensibility is very i I feel moved by by antiquity perhaps but you know but christianity is an ancient religion Yes. And and that antiquity, you know, the, his, it's it's written through time. Mm. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. Augustine talks of the church as being on, a, you know, on, a, on yeah. a, a, a pilgrim church going through time. So the fact that Christianity is situated in time in history is important. Mm. And I, I personally, I find that very moving, and that I find that. So that's why I, 
you know, I'm aware that there will be lots of Christians listening to this who will say, this is all a bit papist. <laughs> when I say Christian, I, I mean um, evangelicals, perhaps, yes. who are saying this is a bit papist, the <laughs> idea that, that space, particular spaces can have a sacrality. But since this podcast is called Resacralize, is it Resacralize? We're re- re-enchanting, re-enchanting. But, but that would be a great <laughs> alternative title and one of your own favourite I, I, terms. I, 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 I crave the enchantment. Yes. And I think yes. a Christianity that has bled itself of enchantment mm. is a pallid and an anemic thing. Yeah. Interesting. Perfect place to end. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you Couldn't so much. Gosh. Um, it's been an absolute joy to talk with yeah. you, Tom. Thank you so much for absolute joining pleasure. us Thanks on the podcast. Me. And uh, yes, we'll be back again next time with another guest. Once I put my mind back together, I think. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Reenchanting Podcast. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you are listening, and it helps others to discover the show. You can also find more episodes, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.